The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. Oh, it's so great to sing together, especially when you start to believe the words you're singing. It gets even sweeter. So uh, if you need to, I think there might, might need to try to scoot in a little. I think we'll be okay. Looks like we've got some people standing. They'll, they'll find their seats. Well, it's good to see you. Please take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're, we're back in our series on in 1 Corinthians. And this book has been teaching us again and again how the cross and the Christian life are always together. We never move beyond the cross. Instead, we move further with the cross. And we live our lives in accordance with the cross. And so we arrive in chapter 5 today where Paul has been laying out for the previous other, other passages what the Christian life is about, and all the problems at Corinth, what they're facing. They're facing some serious issues, and he addresses them first with all of their disunity. And in chapters 1 through 4, they experience so much disunity, and Paul's addressing it. And now in chapters 5 through the end, he's now going to address some very particular and very specific issues. And now we arrive at 1 Corinthians 5. And I love that as we read these words... They, they ought to, we ought to remember that these words are not just frozen letters on a page, but they are coming to us in the very power of the Lord Jesus. They, they come to us from Jesus himself. And I think as we, I love what Paul's even going to say, you're going to read it. As we assemble together in the power of the Lord Jesus, we're hearing from Jesus himself. And so let's stand together in honor of Christ and listen to what the King Jesus has to say to us, beginning in verse 1, as we look at Paul's instruction on church-wide holiness and the kingdom of God. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not even tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as of present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask you now 
that you would send the spirit of the risen Christ to help us understand your word. That we would receive, as 2 Timothy 3 says, that every word of God is profitable for correction, for proof, for training in righteousness, so that the people of God may be equipped for every good work. So now, Lord, would you, would you help us and do only what you can do? And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. One of the great lines that you hear from, from toddlers is, mine. That's mine. And you know what? That doesn't really change much in us adults either. In our house, Natalie and I have at least once or twice a week this occurs. One of us is asking where the iPhone chargers are. Anyone else? I mean, we have like 20,000 of them, and they just go missing all the time. I use hers, but most of the time, she's using mine. <laughs> and one day, I'm getting in bed, and my phone is near death, and it's been a long day. I'm tired. I'm, I'm already ready, all dressed, ready to get in bed. And I reach behind my side of the bed to grab my charger, and it's not there. And I'm frustrated, it's gone, and she used it, like she always does. And I know, like, you know, Christian counselors and biblical counselors don't say always and never. She always uses mine. And I get frustrated over it, over such a silly, you know, ridiculous, petty thing to get upset about. And I go, hey, where's my charger? And my sweet gospel-centered wife looks at me and says, your charger? Jeff, I thought we were one flesh. That's our charger, and I don't know where it is. <laughs> Even in something so silly like that, individualism, this I'm my own person, no one else can control my life, no one else speaks into my life, no one has any right to tell me anything about my life, that individualism and that meism, that is so ingrained into us because really what we're seeing, this is happening in Corinth. Individualism is the is anti-gospel. Individualism is anti-gospel. The gospel of the kingdom is a death blow to our pride, to our arrogance, our sin, and our tendencies towards autonomy and self-governance and isolationism. In Christ, if you are in Christ, you are a Christian, there is no more, I have my life, you have your life over there, let's just do our things. That doesn't exist in marriage, and that doesn't exist in the local church. That's how the world talks, not the church. Oftentimes, we'll see a brother or a sister caught in a sin, whether it's in their marriage or their sour attitude or their anger, and we'll think to themselves, that's a shame. Poor them. Or if it's a bigger issue, we go, man, that's their problem. I, I have my own stuff. I don't have time to get involved with their stuff. But in reality, the gospel of the risen Christ, that blood of Jesus binds us together, and now the Bible says what? We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. So what does that show us? It shows us that your sorrows are no longer quarantined just to you. They are shared and felt by the entire body. Your happiness is no longer something just isolated to you. It's actually shared with all of us, and we genuinely celebrate all of it. We see later in 1 Corinthians, you are not your own. 
You've been bought with a price. Galatians 2. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And what's happening in Corinth is this complete complacency and individualism. And when an ongoing sin is occurring in this church, this unrepentant sin is occurring in the life of a local church, we're all tempted to go, that's their problem, and that's heresy. When you go, that's their issue, that's their problem, that's blasphemy to the gospel. It's actually our problem. It's our issue. Yours and, and mine. You know, in, in Genesis, Cain and Abel, Cain kills his brother, and God speaks to Cain. What happens? Cain, where's your brother? What does Cain say? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And all the time that happens in the local church. Hey, what's going on with, that, with, that, with their marriage? I, I don't know. You're friends with them, right? Yeah. We've turned into Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? Man, where is that family? They haven't seen them at church in forever. I don't know. The point is, we are our brother's keeper in Christ. And what is happening in Corinth is astounding. The sin that is breaking out, and Paul can hardly believe it. Look at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So there's a sin happening in this church, and even the unbelievers would go, whoa, that's bad. That's terrible. That's a bit much. When incest was, someone was found guilty of incest in Roman culture, oftentimes in some areas, they would deport that person to an island. Roman culture put up with a lot. This, no. And here it's happening in Corinth. There is a man who is committing sexual immorality with his father's wife, and it's most likely his stepmom. Whether she's a widow, we don't know. Divorce, we don't know. Older than him, younger than him, we don't know. It wouldn't be abnormal for his stepmom to be around his age, just given the way Roman culture played out. And we can also assume that she's probably not a Christian because Paul doesn't address her in the passage. He addresses the church, he addresses him, and he says nothing about her because you see at the end of Verse 12, what have I to do with judging outsiders? I have nothing to say to her. I have everything to say to the church. And as shocking as this is, and it's way shocking, it's a way shocking situation to happen in this church. And this, isn't, this didn't just happen once. It wasn't like they had too much tequila at the Corinthian meat factory and, you know, the meat temple and then, you know, something crazy happened. No, this is an ongoing situation because look at what he says. A man, verse one, has his father's wife. Ongoing. Even at the time of Paul's writing this letter, this man has his father's wife. That's shocking. But look at what is more shocking to Paul. Verse two. And you, so this guy's doing this, but now in the church, and you, You'd be like, what? That would be us. What are we doing? And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let whom who has done this be removed from among you. So what they are doing, they are complacent. They are proud and they are doing nothing and they are patting themselves on the back for it. This is what grosses Paul out more. What's grieving him is that the church at Corinth is proud for how they're treating the situation and they're just saying, well, grace abounds. Paul says, no, rather, you ought to mourn. You ought to be grieved and moved and affected by this sin, calling him to repentance, and then if he doesn't repent, you ought to remove him from the church. 
but instead they are pimping out the gospel of grace and saying all things are lawful. This is exactly what they say in chapter 6, verse 12. Look at 6, 12. We know that Paul is writing other letters to Corinth. As he saw in chapter 5, Paul says, I wrote to you in my other letter. So now in verse 12 of chapter 6, you see this quote, all things are lawful for me. That's not from the Bible. That is from the Corinthian church. Something they are saying um, um, in their body. Something they're saying in their culture. And something they've said to Paul to try to justify their sins. And Paul's saying, yeah, I know you say all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Just... Yeah, you are now non-condemned and non-condemnable in Christ, but that doesn't mean you can just sin all willy-nilly and everything's going to be all great. They are abusing the grace of God, contorting grace to mean we can do whatever we want. Instead of crucifying sin, their sin, our sin, like the Bible teaches, if we don't crucify our sin, we will normalize our sin. That's exactly what's happening in this church. If we don't crucify sin, we will normalize it. And this is one of the scariest places to get in our lives. We'll either crucify sin, see it as deserving nails, and seeing it as being drowned in the river of Jesus' blood, or we will protect it, and we will hide it, we will normalize it, and then we will celebrate it, just like what's happening at this church. The Corinthians are actually celebrating the situation, not, not by going, hey, let's, let's make this guy the poster boy of, of how great you can sin. That's not what they're doing. That would be too flagrant. Rather, they're saying, look at how patient we are. Look at how gracious we are. We're just saying grace abounds. We're just saying it's okay. They're actually celebrating how they're not living in accordance with the commands of Christ. So why does Paul say this should happen? Why this remove him from among you? Because unrepentant sin is a biohazard in the church. Unrepentant sin is a biohazard in the church. Verse two, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Wow, that's, that's heavy. That's heavy. Let him who has done this, get him out. And it gets heavier. Verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan. You read these and go, okay, this is serious. Verse 11. Do not associate. Verse 12. Purge the evil person from among you. These are jarring words. And they're especially jolting to many because we suffer from a terribly low view of the local church. We view it as just a service you come to, not a body, not a family, not a supernatural gathering of those who are new in Christ. We just view it as a place you come to hear some stuff and sing some songs and move on. And there are so many in the Bible Belt that to be removed from the church means nothing to them. They can take it or leave it. But the point here is that for them, the local church means so much that to lose it would be to lose everything. But for some of us to lose it, be like, well, I'll just go down the street, go somewhere else. And some people, they just do this to themselves by coming to church once or twice a year. They've already done church discipline and removal on themselves. And on the other side, this sounds so intolerant. Remove him, hand him to Satan, purge him. Is this intolerant? Absolutely. It absolutely is. The gospel is intolerant toward unrepentant sin and the lives of Christians. 
Not towards those outside, but towards those inside. The gospel has a severe word for those of us who say we are new in Christ and yet don't want to live like we are new in Christ. What does Jesus say to do? If your right hand causes you to sin, just say, eh, it's all right. No, cut it off. Your eye keeps causing you to sin, rip it out. Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And here it is. So you also must. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must. That's not happening at Corinth. That should happen in the local church. They should tell this man, brother, you must consider yourself dead to this. It's gone. Repent. Turn. We know that our old self is dead. We're new in Christ. We're alive in Christ. Sin no longer has control over us. We're to be led by the Spirit of Jesus. This is why the Bible says that we as Christians must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. We must reject the individualism that's innate in our flesh, And Paul calls the whole Corinthian church to take action. The whole church, time to get together, take action, and remove this guy from the church's fellowship. The whole church is involved. Look at verse 4. When you are assembled, so when you gather, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, this is why when the church gathers, this is a supernatural time. This isn't just coming together, hear some songs, hear a guy teach, and then go home. No, we're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and the power of the Lord Jesus. And Paul says, my spirit is present. It's like, hey, I'm writing this letter and I'm there too. And here's what you are to do. You are to deliver this man to Satan. This is what we commonly call church discipline. This is the final stage in church discipline. The removal from the church's fellowship. Right now, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, we're all under church discipline. I am, you are, because the, the Bible sits over our lives. The community sits over our lives. When Natalie gave me that soft rebuke about the iPhone chargers, she was, as a sister in Christ, she was doing church discipline and calling me to repent of my silliness and my pettiness and my anger. This happens every single day. But what's happening here is the final stage, the removal of this person from the church's fellowship. And the church, it's the church saying, because of your unrepentant and ongoing action, this is not just a struggle, like ah, he kind of struggles and he sees that it's wrong. This is someone who says, I don't see that it's wrong. I don't care, and I'm going to do it. I have no desire to change. I have no desire to change course and follow Jesus. What the church then says is, then we consider you not to be a part of the fellowship, and we want you to repent and follow Jesus. And look at verse 11. Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone, and this is the key, who bears the name brother. Bears the name brother. So this is not how we treat unbelievers. This is someone who is in the church and saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a brother or sister, and I don't want to live like a brother or sister. I don't care. I have no desire to change. Paul says, what we do is, verse 12, what do I do with judging outsiders? It's not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Now, we need to say this because It wasn't obvious to the Corinthians, and I don't want to assume that it's obvious to us. Paul is saying, I'm not writing this to teach you how to treat the world. This is how to treat each other that is 
that are members of the local church. We don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. That would not be very gospel-centered of us. But it is incredibly gospel-centered to expect Christians to live like Christians. The Corinthians didn't understand this concept. And we got to be way careful, too, because look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter. So this is a letter before 1 Corinthians. It's in the Bible. Not to associate with sexually immoral people. And now there's like a full stop. And he's like, let me explain this because they misunderstood him. Verse 10, not at all meaning, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But it seems like a lot of Christians in America, we have flipped this the other way. We allow sin to run crazy in the church and go, oh, I can't be around those people outside. Paul says, no, I expect the exact opposite of that. He expects them to be totally involved in the culture, totally ingrained, and for them not to associate with sexually immoral in this world would mean they need to go live on Mars. Like, they're going to be involved with these people, not at all meaning those outside the world, but exactly meaning those who are in the church. And how severe does this removal have to be? This, the removal of this biohazard? Look at verse 11. But now I'm writing to you, not, so he clarifies it, not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he's guilty of sexual morality, ongoing, unrepentant, no desire to change sexual morality. Do not associate with him. Okay, so the, the follow-up, and Paul answers it. Well, how much? Well, like, what level of association? Like what he says at the end, not even to eat with such a one. How much, Paul? Don't even eat with him. Even. Even's the stress. Because some people could go, well, maybe he means Lord's Supper. No, don't even eat. The most common, ordinary thing that we engage in every single day, Paul says, don't even eat with him. Because by doing so, you are taking off the pressure to repent. You are alleviating the discipline that God is giving, them, giving to them to turn and to believe in Jesus. Eating together is a sign of unity and friendship and common bond. But in this situation, there is no unity. There is no common bond. Now the relationship for this person who's being removed is all calling them to repent and to believe in Jesus. This is the longest passage in the New Testament that has to deal with church discipline. We have passages like Matthew 18 where Jesus says, go and approach him. If, if he repents, you won your brother. If he doesn't, bring two or three more. Approach him. If he doesn't repent, then tell it to the church. Then if he doesn't repent, you treat him as someone who's not a part of the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean you treat them as an enemy, you scoff them, you ignore them. No, it means you invite them to repent and to believe in Jesus. You see this author of the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. As for those who persist in sin, 1 Timothy Rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So this is heavy. This is, and this is meant to bring upon a, a proper fear. This is meant to put the fear of God in us. The fear of dishonoring God in us and wanting to live for the Lord. In Titus 3, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, you see that same kind of formula from Matthew 18, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. I mean, this must be some of the most ignored passages in the whole Bible. The most never obeyed passages in the Bible. Why does the Lord give us these verses? 
They don't seem kind at first blush. They, they don't seem, to our way of thinking, very loving. But we are hearing from the heart of Jesus. Every, every verse we hear in the Bible, every one we read, it is a direct communication from the very heart of God. We're hearing how much God wants to keep us from sin and the great lengths he will go to to help us walk in holiness. Even what feels oppressive at times may actually, and it is actually, the great love of God because he disciplines those whom he loves. Why this removal? Why such a swift action? Look at verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So you hand him for the destruction of the flesh. So that his spirit may be saved. You have the two reasons right here. This handing over to Satan, it doesn't mean that now the church is like, call Satan up and go, okay, Satan, here's, here's Bill. All right, we'll see you later, Bill. That, that's not what's happening. This is, Paul saying there are two spheres. There's the church, there's the whole kingdom of Christ, and then there's the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2, the, the kingdom of Satan that will eventually be destroyed. Paul says, by removing him from the church, we're showing him, you're, we don't view you as being a part of the family of God. He has, there's no other, he can't just go, well, I'm going to go to Corinth Bible Church now. I mean, there's no other option. This is it. So now he's saying, we're turning you loose. You, we think you're a part of Satan's fear unless you repent. And that will break him. Paul expects him to repent. It will destroy his flesh. It will weigh on him so heavily that, no, I, I am a Christian. I am a believer, and I've been, I've been gone in sin. He'll be like the prodigal son, and he'll repent, and he will come back to the fold. It will kill his sin. It will destroy his flesh. The goal of church discipline isn't shunning. It's not this scarlet letterness. This is a, the goal is repentance and restoration. And for the genuine believer, this action will eventually kill their flesh. They will repent, Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We all face this in so many areas of our lives. In so many areas of our lives, the Spirit is convicting us and the Spirit is confronting us. The Word of God is grating against us. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There are, and every time we read the Bible, we sing songs, we're listening to Scripture, what is happening is the Bible's coming up next to us and saying, that's sinful. You know that's wrong. So confess, repent. If that, if that doesn't happen very often in your life, I would be very worried and concerned about your devotion to Christ. And it may reveal that you have almost zero appetite for his word. And that may also eventually reveal that you have zero appetite for Christ himself. What's happening when we read the scriptures is Jesus is meeting us and he's calling us on our sin, inviting us to walk in holiness. And this can happen from something so small as looking at pornography on the internet. It's just you there on your computer. It seems small, seems irrelevant. It's not. The word of God is calling you to repentance. And it may be something so as large and as public as, as an affair, as adultery. I mean, even like in my life, this happens. For me, I feel like I'm constantly, you know, one of the sins that I 
struggle with and battle and just been fighting for years trying to be healthy and be at a healthy weight and, and to not be gluttonous and, and all those kinds of things and seeing that sin, acknowledging it. And I'd been healthy for a while and I noticed and I started getting, you know, Natalie and I were talking, she's been helping me like, man, I'm getting a little heavier. And, um, and for like three weeks, it just kept weighing on me. The Bible just kept convicting me about this sin that I was doing. And Natalie and I were talking one day and she just goes, I don't, I mean, I don't know what's happened. I mean, we have healthy food at home. I know you travel and that, that makes it hard, but I don't know what's going I don't know what else to do. We have healthy food at home. We don't have anything bad here. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's just, ugh, it's just too shameful. She's like, what is it? Just say it. Like, I've been convicted like the past two weeks for, I mean, every time I go to the grocery store, I'm grabbing one or two candy bars and eating them on my way home. <laughs> and I hate it. And she's like, oh, Jeff, why? So, I'm like, I don't know. They're not even that good. But like, I just... I'm craving it, and I just take it, and I know it's wrong, and I know it's sinful, and, I, and we only live like three minutes from the grocery store, so like I got to eat them fast, and I'm, I'm popping in Altoids before I come in to cover the peanut butter smell. I mean, you would think it's like I'm committing an affair. Like I'm looking in the mirror, make sure there's no chocolate on my face, and like I don't smell like candy, and I'm going in, and like this has been weighing on me for weeks, that even something so ridiculous... I was confronted by the Lord Jesus himself saying, are, am I really your Lord or is this this theory? Do I really have lordship over whether you eat or drink or whatever you do? Or is this just all words on a page to you? Well, what the Corinthians are facing, what you and I are facing right now is I, am I going to keep doing this or that? Does the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the authority of Jesus, does that really change my life? What the Bible's asking is, is how real is Jesus to us? Does the blood of Jesus change the way I look at my sins? This is Christian living. This is Christianity. Jesus doesn't want us to live like dead people, but as new people in him. This is why in verse 6, Paul says, do you not know? This, this phrase happens 10 times throughout this book, implying you know, but you don't know. You know, but you don't know. Do you not know? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So Paul gives them a baking lesson. He takes them to home economics, home ec 101. And back then, baking bread, since leaven was a very rare ingredient, they would save a piece of that dough, just break off a little bit, and they would add it to the new dough for next week or the next time they bake. So because this that one little bit of leaven, it will spread throughout the whole thing and help it cook and bake and all that good stuff. And I, I remember this class in high school at home ec, you know this. We didn't talk about leaven because we almost never talk about leaven unless we're in this passage. <laughs> no one, no one, you didn't talk about leaven this week in your homes, but you talk about using clean silverware, talk about how to properly prepare raw chicken because you don't want to cross-contaminate. You can get really sick from those things. So we understand this. Sin is always looking to cross-contaminate in our lives. Sin is always looking to steal, to kill, and destroy. And this one little area in the church, it is now ruining this guy's life and is now going to really impact the entire church. Sin always wants to grow to its highest that it can. A double glance at a woman walking by at Starbucks wants to become adultery. It wants to become a full-fledged pornography addiction. It wants to bring on divorce and it wants to bring on destruction. An offense of your ego and your pride wants to become anger. It wants to become cold shouldering. It wants to become maybe verbal abuse. It wants to become anger. And then it wants to become murder. 
A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin wants to snowball as big as it can get. This is why Paul and this is why Jesus says it's got to stop. I mean, think about even the silly candy bar thing. All the rudimentary needs that are there to scheme my way into any sin are already present. Hiding, timing, covering up. You take out candy bar, put in a woman. All the same rudimentary pieces to happen. That, this is why sin is so dangerous. Any sin that you hide, you're learning how to hide anything. Any sin that you conceal, you're, you're learning how to get away with it in the short run. But the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, and the righteous are bold as a lion, Proverbs 28.1. This is why Paul says it must stop. It must be cut out. It's going to hurt the whole church, and it's doing already. Remove the old leaven, Paul says. We hear these same analogies. Remove the old man. Put off the old man. Put on the new self. Be the unleavened bread. These analogies, the analogies that Paul is fond of using, and see that you are the new lump, because it can be very detrimental to you. And I heard of a story just this, this recently about another church plant in a foreign country that a sin, a sexual sin occurred in, in the church, and it was so, its nature was so despised by, by, that, by that culture they were in that the person that committed that sin had to leave immediately, had to hop on a plane and come back to the United States. And when news spread about in the community what happened in this, in, this, in this church, the pastor, his wife, his family, they had to leave. And the church is probably going to close down after six years of trying to plant in this, in this part of the world. This one sin, this one bit of leaven spread throughout and just destroyed it, destroyed the work. See that your sin isn't just your sin. And my sin isn't just my sin. My life, your life, they're not just ours individually. They're ours corporately. And so Paul says, see that you are the new lump. Look at verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven. That, this is repentance. This is a removal. That you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Paul says, look at the next word. Let us, therefore, Celebrate. So we should be celebrating from the gospel. We are unleavened. Paul says, let me give you, I gave you a baking lesson. Let me give you an identity lesson. You are unleavened. You are clean. You've been washed. You've been made new. There's really no defect in you anymore because of Christ. If you are in Christ, this is who you are. This is like, we love identity statements. You're in Christ. You're new. You're adopted. You're loved. You're forgiven. This is one of them, unleavened. Not one we think about very often. I'm adopted, I'm loved, I'm unleavened. You know, that, that, that is, but it, it's so true. We've been purged from all that's been left in us in our old nature. And we may not always feel that way, but it doesn't make it any less true. Just because you don't feel it doesn't mean it's not true. And that's exactly Paul's point. What's happening in Corinth is they are forgetting the supernatural power and realities of the gospel in their lives. In this whole book, and I think any issue we face in our lives, is that the zest of the gospel has lost its, its impact on us. And I love this one scholar says about the Corinthian church. The Corinthians are factional, they're immoral, they're inebriated, they're irreverent, they're jealous, they're unloving, and theologically misinformed. He says, we might be tempted to think the Corinthians need a unity ministry, a sex and marriage ministry, an alcoholic recovery ministry, and so on. But Paul knows that such fracture and superficial fixes would fail to deal with the root issues that are happening in Corinth. All of the community's troubles flow from their failure to understand the gospel and live in light of it. 
The Corinthians do not need to move beyond the gospel. They don't need to add anything to the gospel. They only need to be reminded of the gospel which Paul preached to them. They need more gospel. And Paul's going to give it to them. When the phrase, as you really are. So there's a quick danger there. If that as you really are isn't there, oh man, what a, what a disappointing verse this would be. Verse seven, cleanse of the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Period. That would be depressing. So cleanse it out, do this so you can become that. But he says, no, no, no. Cleanse out the old leaven so you can be a new lump as you really are. You already are the new lump. You already are the unleavened bread. Christianity is just becoming what you already are. It's believing by faith and becoming by faith what you already are in Christ. And do you see why all this matters to Paul? Why does sexual morality need to be removed? Why does the whole church need to get involved? Why does the repentance from this brother need to happen? Look at, the, look at this phrase, verse seven. As you really are unleavened for, here's the reason, for, for, for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Why is this so important? Because we live under the blood of the lamb. Paul's taking us back to this Passover lamb. He's taking us back all the way to Exodus to a group of Israelites huddled together, needing help under Pharaoh's tyranny. And God's wrath is invading Egypt. But the Israelites will be spared if they will take a lamb, slit its throat, and take that blood and paint it on their front door. God says, do that, and my wrath will pass over you. And Paul takes that language and he looks a square in the face and says, that's what happened to you. That's what happened in your conversion. Our Passover lamb. Is, is he yours? Is he your Passover lamb? He can be today. Have you looked to Jesus and believed that in asking and inviting his blood to cover your life? The blood of Jesus, the great lamb of God, he was slain in our place. He was nailed to that awful blood-spattered tree, and his blood covers our sins, covers our whole lives, and now the wrath of God just passes over. It just passes over forever and completely because it was totally exhausted and landed on, it did not pass over Jesus. It landed on Jesus for us. Sins paid, forgiveness granted by faith alone in the Lamb. And this is the great joy and gift of Christianity. I'm just left in amazement like this. I mean, it's left, it's like we're sitting in the tyranny, not of Pharaoh, but in the sphere of Satan. And yet wherever we go, there's just a blood splatter on top of us. You know, like at the end of Frozen, when uh, Olaf, he, instead of melting, what does Elsa do? She puts a little cloud of snow to follow him everywhere, wherever he goes, so he just, he's, he's safe. It's like wherever you and I go, there's just a splatter of blood painted over our lives. And wherever you go, forgiven, claimed, passed over, God's wrath passed over me. So do your worst, Satan. God's wrath has already passed over me. And forever, God's wrath will, it, God will never hover back around in your 70s and go, 
Testament. Did Chad Rippey blow it today? He'll, he'll hover over and go, I see blood. I see the blood of my son forgiven. The blood is our only plea. The blood is our only confidence. The blood is our only safety in this life. And what a relief. What freedom. I mean, now we can just all exhale and just live and just live in peace. This is why Jesus says after his resurrection to his disciples, peace be with you. And now Jesus looks at us and says, you're freed. You can exhale. You can live. Peace be with you. And this is why Paul says in verse 8, let's party. That's exactly what he says in verse 8. Since this is true, since Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, let's party. Let us therefore celebrate. Celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the sin, and malice, and envy. That's not how we party. How do we party? With the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Celebration is a core value of the gospel. If, if you've been a Christian for a while and you just like, you're getting grumpy, you don't get the gospel. That's just blasphemy to the gospel. If, if you're a Christian living and trying to live more for Jesus makes you more sour, then you're doing it wrong. The gospel invites us to do more than mentally acknowledge our forgiveness and salvation. It invites us to celebrate. We need a theology of celebration just as much as we need a theology of atonement because a gospel party don't stop. We are people that rejoice in the blood. We sing songs about blood. How weird are we? We're gathering and singing about the blood of a Nazarene man who was poured out for us and we, believed is, and we believe isn't dead anymore. And it's all glorious, transforming, securing power in our lives. And Paul draws upon this feast that the Israelites celebrated, of un, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he says, now it's time for us to celebrate. Celebrate that we are now God's holy people. Celebrate not with sin, not with malice and evil, as he says, but with the unleavened bread of holiness. Living the Christian life is its own celebration because you're living as a resurrected person. You are living as someone who's not dead anymore. If our Christian living isn't inciting this, we're off. So let's celebrate the festival. That's exactly what he says. Let us therefore celebrate. So that's exactly what we're going to do. We are going to celebrate the, the bread, our newness in Christ and the Lord's Supper, the glory of Jesus' cross for us, the bread, the body broken, the cup, the blood spilled out. So let's remember Jesus and the Lord's Supper, broken for us, because he did this at Passover. He did this with his brothers in the upper room. And now Jesus is saying to us, let's celebrate together. Let's celebrate what I've done for you. This is Christianity church-wide holiness as unleavened people now living in Christ. So let's celebrate the festival together. Let's pray. For serving the Lord's Supper today, band, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Jesus, we, we praise you that you have made us unleavened. All, you have purged out all of the sin. You have purged out all of our wickedness. And now we are washed, cleansed. We are made holy. And Lord, would you help us to believe it? I know some of us just don't believe it because we don't live like we believe it. So would you help us to live as though we actually believe? Would you help, would you help us to see it become realities in our life that there is power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb? That 
The only thing that can wash away our sins is nothing but the blood of Jesus. And oh, how precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. And that by your wounds, we have been healed. So Jesus, would you help us by your spirit to celebrate the festival, to enjoy our new life in you, and to not live as though we are filled with leaven, but to live as though we are filled with the spirit, your spirit. So now, Lord, we invite you to do only what you can do. And it's in your awesome and mighty resurrected name that we pray. Amen.